All right, thank you very much. You may be seated. What a, what a good morning. I, I enjoy hearing the testimonies about hope for Appalachia. And what you see, and I know everybody knows this to be true, over and again, is that most people who trust Christ as their Savior, they do it when they're a child or a teenager. And there's a hardening of the heart that goes on as they get older and older. We have Vacation Bible School coming up. What an ideal time to be sharing the gospel with young children. If, if you're a parent, you have an ideal opportunity to share Jesus Christ, to live Jesus Christ in front of your children. So much, I believe that so much so that in, on the 23rd of June, after Vacation Bible School, I want to talk specifically to parents and grandparents about children and, and raising children and, and those kind of issues. I'm looking forward to it. But for today, we are in First Peter chapter number 4. And um, I was reading something this week, and I want to read it to you and see what you think. People of the 21st century view Christians as killjoys who live gloomy lives, devoid of pleasure. The pleasures from which Christians of the 21st century typically abstain from are popular forms of entertainment. Certain streaming shows with their, uh, with their risque performances, uh, the NFL, the MMA with the, the blood and the gore. Christian lifestyle also condemns the... the quote-unquote pleasures of an indulgent temper and sex outside of marriage, drunkenness, slander, lying, covetousness, and theft. These attitudes toward contemporary societal customs and morals combined with the Christian's refusal to give way to the LGBT revolution, a gesture of civic gratitude intended to assure the well-being of the nation, and earned Christians a reputation of being haters of humanity and traitors to their children's way of life. Is that an accurate portrayal of the way people view Christians nowadays from a secular perspective? A lot of you are shaking your head yes. What is very interesting about what I read is that was actually historians' view of Christians back in the first century. And I changed some very critical words here. One is pagans of the first century rather than people of the 21st century. And then I substituted streaming media entertainment uh, in the, the place of theater and risque performances, the chariot races, and the uh, gladiatorial fights. I mean, basically the same kind of cultural problems they had in the first century we have in America now. Uh, Roman customs instead of American customs. And then they burnt incense to the emperors for well-being of life. And I'm not kidding you. If you listen to the narrative of the secularists today, if you do not give in to the LGBT agenda, you are not only endangering the nation, you're endangering your children. They literally say that. And I can point you to articles where they do. Nothing has changed in 20 centuries of the Christian walk. That is how relative, or I'm sorry, relevant the Bible is to your day-to-day living. It's a living document. So what Peter is saying to Christians uh, who are exiles, and that's the mentality that we need to have as believers, what he is saying to these exiles, he could stand up here today and say the exact same thing and be very relevant and very applicable to our current situation. This is a type of attitude that's directed toward the Christians that Peter was writing to, and Christians were thought of as a little bit odd. Do you like to be thought of as odd? 
Do you like, do you like to be singled out as the, uh, what are you shaking your head yes for? I got people that say, yeah, I love you. No, you don't. You don't. I remember one time I got to tell this. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I got to. Okay. Um, I was, we are, I was in choir, believe it or not. <laughs> if you've ever heard me sing, uh, I don't know what was going on with that. But um, anyway, we, I was in the choir and one of the motivations our choir teacher did to get us on choir trips what, or to get us on choir was to take trips. And these are really cool trips. Niagara Falls, Washington, D.C., uh, New York City, these kind of different places. And we would uh, perform along the way. That was his justification for us to go see all these these really cool places. I remember one time, um, and, and I honestly, I don't know what I did that it was so funny, but somehow it became the joke for the rest of the trip. It was early on in the trip. We're on the bus, and you know how guys are trying to one of each other on saying something funny. I just remember doing something to the fact of, I went, that's a, that's a good one. And however I did it, 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 everybody thought it was funny. And for the whole rest of the trip, every time somebody told a joke, everybody would say, that's a good one, mocking me. And I remember feeling like, I remember thinking to myself, why did I say that? Why didn't I just go back? And If I could go back in time and, and not do that, this trip would be so much better, right? None of us, and by the way, don't start doing that. Because it... It's it's not going to work, okay? I'm impervious to that today. But but none of us none of us like to be f- viewed as being a bit odd. But the very fact of the matter is, the the culture in the West is getting to such a point where you are going to be viewed as somebody a little bit odd. There there was a little underlying social pressure to conform to the social norms. The passage that Brett read today is a continuation of the truth stated in First Peter 3.17. If you turn your Bibles to First Peter 3.17, is my microphone a little bit hot? I feel like it's a little bit high. First um, Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Read those words again. It is better to suffer for doing good... Then for doing evil, that be God's will. Isn't that weird? And so what Peter does is he, he then explains what he means by that strange verse. It's a radical thought. And the explanation that we saw in previous times is that the suffering of Christ, the meaning, meaning his crucifixion and death was the pathway to glory. Christ came down to earth. He, he lived as a human being. He humbled himself, became obedient unto death, the death of the cross. And then God highly exalted him. That, that pathway that he took in suffering and dying on the cross, the demons thinking that, that they were victorious and they were absolutely wrong because Christ proclaimed victory to them and now he's at the right hand of God. That is the pathway that Peter says that we will be taking as Christians. And so today's verses that we read answers the question, so what does the suffering of Jesus Christ have to do with me? And the answer is found in the first couple of verses. And basically what Peter says is this. Since Christ suffered in the flesh to conquer sin, believers must resolve to be willing to suffer in order to overcome sin and to live to the will of God. In other words, let me say it another way. If you are going to live for Jesus, expect some pushback. 
right? That's, that's what Peter is teaching. If you're going to live for Jesus, expect some pushback. And we've been insulated here in the, in the United States for so long, but it's beginning to be a reality here as well, isn't it? Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about, a pushback. Canada recently passed a law, and it was upheld by the court. It, it went to court. And it basically says that all doctors must refer someone who wants to die to a physician who will help assist their suicide. The law was recently upheld against Christian doctors who said that their religious convictions and conscience would not allow them to do this. And the courts in Canada came back and said, the the good of society trumps your religious convictions. And I know what you're saying, well, that's North America, but that's not the United States. Well, let me tell you the thinking by the influencers today. There was, a, there was an op-ed piece in the New York Times recently. It ran, and the argument of that op-ed piece, by the way, I've got links to both of these if you want them. The op-ed piece argued that Christian doctors who are opposed to abortion should steer clear of certain medical fields such as obstetrics, gynecology, when making a career choice. Some medical colleges in Canada are arguing that incoming students should agree to perform abortions. Otherwise, they're not agreeing to perform the entire spectrum of quote-unquote medical care. That is the thinking that currently is in academic circles and is now being disseminated in the New York Times and other prominent newspapers. They are influencing the culture to the degree that your children or grandchildren who one day may want to become a medical doctor will be prevented because they do not, by their Christian beliefs, agree with the societal norms. And I could go on and on and on, but I don't need to. This is where we're headed in the United States. And so when Peter says to the people that you need to get ready for this sort of thing, it's very applicable to us today. And so in the face of swift societal change and eventual universal opposition to biblical Christianity here in the West, the question I want to answer today is this. How does a Christian live for God? And Peter answers that in uh, question in four different ways. Number one, he says that we, we need to have the mind of Christ. Look at what he says in, in uh, 1 Peter 4.1. Arm yourselves with the, the same way of thinking. This word arm is, is a military term, and it indicates that discipline and grit are needed to live the Christian life, most especially in, in the face of suffering uh, because of your faith. Our challenge is to have the long view in mind. Don't we need to have the long view in mind? That's so often, that's, that's hard to do. Just like Christ did. I, I started to quote it a little bit, but I'll quote it here. Remember Philippians 2, uh, 5 to 9. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by be, becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Why did he do that? 
Why was he willing to condescend the human form? And then not only that, but suffer and die on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. The long view for Jesus Christ was eternal glory and eternal. I don't want to even use the word reward because he's God, but eternal glory. And that was far greater than any death and suffering you could have here on earth. The same way of thinking uh, Paul expressed in 2 Corinthians 4.17, he says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is, this is the long view that the Christian lives for. That if you live for Jesus Christ, you're willing to put up with suffering. You're willing to be thought of as odd or, or willing to be maligned. The long view is that you will be glorified forever and ever and ever. And this is a far cry from the shallow gospel that you hear in so many churches today that says God loves you and wants a wonderful, has a wonderful plan for your life and He wants to give you health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. That is so counter what, what the Bible actually says. The Bible clearly spells out that obedience to God may lead to unpleasant circumstances. Now when you, when you think about Jesus, um, I was thinking about this this week and, and reading um, some uh, some about it as well. We have this tendency to think that when Jesus came down to earth, because he was the perfect person, right, the perfect son of God, that he was impervious to temptation, that that things didn't bother him. But if you think about the fact that Jesus was 100% human, right? And 100% God, isn't that what we teach in biblical Christianity? That means that in his humanity, he had to deliberate and to think and decide that he was going to follow the, the Father's will, knowing what was coming at him. Wouldn't, that, wouldn't his humanity dictate that? He's not, he's not a, 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 a droid, and he's not a, a, a zombie or anything like that. He had to think through and deliberate that just like we have to do, deliberation. Repeatedly throughout his life, Jesus deliberately chose to embrace his calling, even though it meant suffering, being misunderstood and rejected, and finally tortured to death. His full humanity meant that although he was tempted to sin and thereby renounce his calling, he constantly decided to obey God and suffer the consequences. Now, that leads me to a question. That some of you may be thinking right here today, and that is, why should we plan to suffer? Why should we make provision for eventual pushback from society? The answer is in verse number two. Look, look at what he says. He says, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking, verse number two, so as to live the rest of the time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And here it is spelled out. And what he's saying is, you can either live for human passions, or you can live for the will of God. And to live for the will of God is to avoid fallen human desires. They're, they're opposed to each other. They're, they're opposite each other. 
they're listed in broad categories in verse number three. And this brings us to the second principle that Peter talks about. And that is that we should aim upward and forward. Look at Peter, what he says. And I'm going to tie four verses together in just a moment. But look, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same Flood, you notice the terminology here, flood of debauchery, and they malign you. This is what he's saying. He's telling these people that, and reminding them that before Christ, this is how they lived. But now they're after Christ. And so therefore, after Christ looks different than before Christ. And so before they live for human passions, now they live for the will of God. And when I say human passions, I'm talking about sinful passions and desires that that Peter mentions here. Now is the time to look forward. The list of vices uh, involves unrestrained desires for sex and food and drink. And what's interesting is that this is just like for simple enjoyment that they were they were doing these things. There there was a there was there was a goal, and the goal was drunkenness. And the goal of that drunkenness was not just to get drunk, but to enjoy the moral looseness that comes along with that drunkenness. And there, there was actually a term in this area, and it's called, um, I want to make sure I get it right, Bacalinus, or back, uh, uh, I think it's Bacalinus, Linnaeus. Anyway, it's, it's a service to the Roman god Bacchus. Are you familiar with the Roman god Bacchus, the god of wine? Notice his hair is made of grapevines as opposed to regular hair. How would you like that? All the winos would be falling you all over the place, wouldn't they? But, um, but Bacchus, the idea was that if you followed Bacchus, you could get in touch with all the other idols that you worship because you're going to get rid of your inhibitions. Any remnants of conscience um, operating as restraints are abolished at these kind of events. And so he's pushing back against a form of idolatry. Now, we don't worship Bacchus in America, do we? Well, we don't call it worship per se. Um, We don't use the name Bacchus. But isn't this kind of behavior celebrated in so many different ways? Especially, especially in entertainment. Remember what I read at the very beginning? Romans maligned Christians for avoiding these popular forms of Roman entertainment that glorified these very things. And I, I am quite sure that most everybody here does not do this, right? Uh, I'm quite sure. But let me ask you a question. Do you allow yourself to be entertained by these sorts of things? There's a uh, there's a disturbing trend in in what I see with Christian young men to get together and entertain and watch the forms of entertainment that glorify these very things that Peter is talking about. Let me ask you a question: In Colossians three five and six. Paul names these very vices and says, upon these things is coming the wrath of God. 
why would a Christian choose to entertain themselves, streaming media, video games, whatever it happens to be, on the very things that God hates and Christ died on the cross for? Just, just think about this. This is all I want you to do. Just think about it. Notice what else he says. In, in, in verse number 4, he says, when you don't participate in these things, they are surprised when you don't join them in the flood of, of debauchery, and so they malign you. That word malign is oftentimes translated blaspheme. It, it's blasphemous. It's, it's a word that means to really uh, tear down somebody's name. It means to speak in an injurious way. It, and what he's saying is, you used to participate in these things, and now you don't, and now they're talking really bad about you. It, you, We could imagine what that would be like, wouldn't it? Oh, so now you think you're better than us? You used to hang out with us, and now you don't. You think you're better than us. Oh, well, you're just goody two-shoes. Uh, what's going on with you now that you found Jesus? And you've heard, you've heard these sort of things before. It's even a little more pervasive. Back in um, in March, if you remember this, there was a a rugby player, and his name was Israel Falau. You you remember him? He all he did was quoted part of. Actually, he didn't even quote. He paraphrased First Corinthians six nine. And which basically says drunks, homosexuals, adulterers, liars, fornicators, thieves, atheists, and idolaters will not go to heaven. And Israel Falau, if you remember, lost his job. He was one of the best, from what I understand, I don't watch rugby, best rugby players in Australia. And he was, he was basically banned from the game. Uh, he can't get a job there. Uh, just for quoting a Bible verse, that's that's the kind of thing that we're talking about here. And so, so when you live for Christ, and and people look at your behavior and think they think, wow, that is really odd. They don't do the same thing we do, and they start talking bad about you. You should expect that they they malign you. You you should expect that to happen to a degree, but what we need to see though is that there's something else coming. Peter reminds his readers of two more truths, and these are so important. The first one is that those that malign you will be judged by God. Look at verse number 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Mark this down. All of life is lived before the presence of God. Isn't that wonderful? All of life is lived before the presence of God. I think that's wonderful truth. Because I'm a believer. And God sees the, the mother who is up a lot with her children. God sees the mother who sacrifices for her children. God sees the father who takes the time to tell his children the gospel, to live the gospel in front of them, right? God sees those things. God sees the little things that you do for other Christians when you're praying for them and you're burdened for somebody and you know somebody's struggling and so you lift them up in prayer and you pray for people's salvation. God sees all that. And for me, that is a wonderful, wonderful truth and it should be comforting to you too. But on the flip side, Peter uses the word living in the dead, which represents all humanity, past and present. And what he's saying is this, that nobody will be able to escape the responsibility for their actions. We will all give account. 
give account. Legizomai. No one escapes the judgment of God. And that judgment will either acquit or condemn. And it's all based upon your response to Christ. Whether or not you are acquitted of your sin is, is determined by how you respond to Jesus Christ. And so what, what does that cause us to do as Christians? Well, let me say this before I get there even. This word give account, it's, it's very interesting when you look at the New Testament and the usage of that word when it talks about non-Christians, it's literally almost saying like they have a debt. And we know that they have a debt to God, right? And they just keep adding to that debt, kind of like a government. You know, payday's coming, right? But, but um, they're adding to their debt, their sin debt. It's more and more and more and more. And on the day of judgment, they will give account to God for that sin debt, and they will be required to pay for it forever in hell. You know what the Bible says? And whether they live or die in this world, whether they're around till the judge comes, or whether they die before he gets here, they're going to show up at the judgment, and they're going to be condemned. Now, if you are sitting there thinking, good for them, then, uh, well, I don't know what I want to say to you. Other than let's go to the next point, because this is the next point. Literally, what should our response be? Preach the gospel. Preach the gospel. L- look at verse number six. It's, it's, it can be misunderstood. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. There's a a thought that's tracking with Paul, Ephesians 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. And now what did God do? He made you alive in Jesus Christ. Exact same thought. What is Peter saying? He is saying that because you don't face the judgment and these people face the judgment, preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the dead so that some may be saved from the judgment to come. Isn't that a wonderful privilege that we have? uh, If that doesn't excite you, that you have a message that can cause somebody to escape the eternal judgment of God. It's a, it's a wonderful message. We're not to hole up in some holy huddle somewhere. We're not to build high walls and fences. We're not to treat this like some sort of a club. Hey, we're the ones that are in. We're the ones that get there. No. What Peter is saying, what Paul talks about, what Jesus talks about, is to go out. Go out looking for the lost sheep. Go out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're ambassadors. We have the greatest news in all the world. The greatest problem of all humanity has nothing to do with anything in this life and has everything to do with the the life after this life. That's the greatest problem is how can a person avoid the judgment of God? Nothing else literally matters, does it? It's, It's We have the greatest message in the world. All, all believers, I think, would benefit from reading a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. 
I'm sure some of you have read parts of it. It demonstrates how darkly the world can act to extinguish the, the, the light of God uh, and, and the light of Christ-like character. And we see one famous uh, account of the martyrdom of a guy named Polycarp. All right, so parents, there's a good name. Polycarp. I've never met anybody named Polycarp. Polycarp was alive from 70 A.D. until somewhere in the the mid-2nd century. But he was a pastor of the church of Smyrna. You've heard of Smyrna. And he learned from the Apostle John. He knew John. Isn't that cool? Polycarp faced the fury of the proconsul of Smyrna, and, and he did it with fearless hope. By this time, he's, a, he's an elderly man. And when he was brought before the proconsul, the proconsul asked if he were Polycarp, and he confessed that he was. And the proconsul tried to uh, persuade him to recant, saying, have respect for your age. Basically, hey, you're an old dude. You know, just die in peace. Have respect for your age and other such things. He swear by the genius of, of Caesar. Repent. Say, away with the atheist. Now, let me explain something. In Roman thinking during this time, Christians were atheists because they did not pray to the emperor. They were considered atheists. So that's to understand the context. Polycarp solemnly looked at the whole crowd of lawless people who were in the stadium and motioned toward them with his hand and groaning as he looked toward heaven, said, away with the atheists. But the magistrate persisted and said, swear the oath and I will release you. Revile Christ. And this is his response. And so many of you know his response. He said, for 86 years, I have been his servant. He has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my, my king who saved me? He said that in front of the proconsul. As, as the proconsul continued to insist, swear by the genius of, of Caesar, he answered, If you vainly suppose I will swear by the genius of Caesar as you request and pre- pretend not to know who I am, listen carefully. And this is what he said, I am a Christian. And so the proconsul said, Well, I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them unless you change your mind. He said, Call for them. For, re- for repentance from better to worse is a change impossible for us. It's a noble thing to, to change from that which is evil to righteousness. And so the proconsul looked at him and he said, I will have you consumed by fire since you despise a wild beast unless you change your mind. And Polycarp said this, he said, You threaten with fire that burns only briefly, but after a little while is extinguished, for you are ignorant of the fire of eternal judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Do what you wish. And with that, the proconsul uh, proclaimed that he needed to be burned. And as the Roman soldiers got ready to tie him to a stake on the bier that he was on, he said, you, there's no need for that. I am not going to move. And they literally placed him in the midst of the fire, and he never moved. And he, he proclaimed Jesus Christ till the very end. That was such a formative moment in the early times in Smyrna and the area, the Polycarp became quite a famous person because nobody had ever seen anybody do that in the face of being burned to death. And he did it for Jesus Christ. Now, I'm, I'm guaranteeing that nobody here is going to be burned to death because of Jesus Christ. 
Um, you might like to burn to death some some um, Falcons fans or something like that, but uh, you know we're not we're not going to do anything like that. Uh, we're not going to have that done, but we are going to be maligned. But think about this: as I close, there are 7.7 billion people in the world. The Bible says that one day all of them will give account of themselves to God. Not only them, but the billions who lived before them. And so you and I stand as an ambassador of light in a very dark world. Your life is a testimony to the wonderful change brought about by your salvation Many of these people that I speak of, you don't think of them in their lost and dying condition because they're going to mock you. They're going to malign you. They're going to make fun of Jesus. But there are a few people who will see your noble character reflected in your changed life and inquire about your king. The Bible always talks about Christians being a remnant We're just a remnant. That's all we are. And so what is the gospel message? The gospel message is simply one sinner telling another sinner that judgment is coming, then telling them how to escape that judgment. That's the gospel message. I'm not trying to be manipulative. How many of you have enough care and concern for your neighbors, for your co-workers, for your families that you'll actually share the gospel with them. Well, you don't understand, Pastor. If I do that, Christmas is going to be really awkward. Well, Pastor, you don't understand. At my job, there is a possibility I won't get my promotion. I'll get ridden up at work for talking about Jesus Christ. Seriously? We're talking about eternal judgment. Are you willing to be maligned and share the gospel with people so that some, and it's so exciting when it happens, isn't it? So that some may be saved. I'm going to close with this. I um, joined the fire department in the rescue squad where I came from, and it was only for one purpose. Uh, well, I shouldn't say it. One primary purpose, let me put it that way. And that was so that I could tell people about Jesus Christ. That, that was my primary purpose. Sure, it was great helping people. It was, it was great fighting fire. Sometimes it was actually even fun. Uh, most of the time it wasn't. But I got to tell people about Jesus Christ. And um, if you go talk to the people up there that were on the fire department, they, they loved to make fun of me because I was a pastor. Um, and it was all really good natured. They would, uh, somebody would maybe cuss in a meeting and everybody would say, oh, Jared. And I'd, I'd joke around and say, well, I'll see you at church on Sunday. A lot of them having a Catholic background thought that, you know, you go repent or whatever and everybody would laugh. But what was interesting is some did get saved. Of, of the 40 or 50 people that I was able to consistently share the gospel with, probably about three or four of them did actually receive Christ as their Savior. You know what I can tell you about that? It was so totally worth it. It was worth getting up in the middle of the night, feeling sick to your stomach on a rescue call because being awakened at 2 a.m. by something like that, that's the way you feel. It was worth all the meetings I went to because some three or four of them 
receive Christ as their Savior. And that's what it's all about. Peter said they will malign you, but remember, their judgment day is coming and you've got the solution. So go preach the gospel. May the Lord fill us with a church full of people who proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone around them. Oh, we we have such a blessed privilege. Lord, we thank you for the the message of Peter. And and I want to be quite honest, Lord, uh, this is not the type of message that I really want to preach. But this is your word and it's in your word and so it must be preached. Lord, uh, help us not to shy away from hard times, but rather that we'll be bold in our proclamation of the gospel, that you will send us out to people whose hearts and ears are ready to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we'll be emboldened to share the gospel with those who have never heard it, don't know it, and even be willing to be risk-takers for the glory of Jesus Christ. In His name, Amen.